What is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? Excellent question, General Milley. Let's try to answer it. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nope, it still ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to another thrilling edition of the Bradcast, and well, 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 well... This just in moments ago, I think you're going to like this one, Desiree. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Manhattan prosecutors have informed Donald Trump's company that it could soon face criminal charges stemming from a long-running investigation into the former president's business dealings. The New York Times, citing sources familiar with the matter, reported that charges could be filed against the Trump organization As early as next week, related Hmm. to fringe benefits the company gave to top executives, such as the use of apartments, cars and school tuition, but for which they failed to account for when paying their taxes. The prosecutors had been building a case for months against the executive, uh, the company's chief executive, other than Trump, I guess, or the the financial uh, chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg as part of an effort to pressure him to cooperate with a broader inquiry into Trump's business dealings. But it was not previously known that the Trump organization itself also might face charges. Prosecutors recently have focused much of the investigation into perks that Trump and the company doled out to Weiselberg and other executives, including Tens of thousands of dollars in private school tuition for one of Weiselberg's grandchildren, as well as rents on apartments and car leases for him and his son, who also works for the organization. They are looking into whether those benefits were properly recorded in the company's ledgers and whether taxes were paid on them, according to The Times. Trump uh, organization lawyer Ron Fischetti 
has since confirmed to NBC News that, quote, it looks like they are going to come down with charges against the company. And he says that is completely outrageous. An indictment of Trump's company could be a blow to the former president just as he has started to hold rallies and flirt with a return to politics. The Times reports flirt with a return. Uh, did he ever That's leave? That's some delicate language yeah, there. Yeah, right? Uh, now, of course, he was all set to be reinstated as president in August, remember? According to the MAGA mob. Uh, according to Trump himself, which, by the way, goes a long way uh, to confirming the theory that he was you know, putting that idea forward so he could then cite that as the reason that the Democrats and the deep state would be indicting him this summer. That was the uh, theory put forward by Trump biographer Seth Abramson a few weeks ago, as we reported here, and looks like he might have been on the money. While the Trump organization is inseparable from Trump himself, acting as the corporate umbrella for a portfolio of hotels, golf clubs and other real estate, most of which are branded with his name, the Times reports that it is still unknown whether Trump himself will ultimately face charges. But apparently, given how unusual it is for prosecutors to bring charges over taxes paid on fringe benefits... Uh, it does seem reasonable here to assume that much of this is meant to bring pressure on Weisselberg and his family as uh, prosecutors obviously are hoping to flip one or both of them. Uh, his son works for the company to testify against Trump himself. This is almost certainly a part of that effort, I would see, I would think. But we will see in the next week or so uh, when and if these charges are officially brought. The inquiry is also examining the organization's statements to insurance companies about the value of various assets and any role that its employees, such as Weisselberg, may have played in hush money payments to uh, two women during the 2016 presidential campaign. No charges have been filed yet uh, in this long-running probe. As prosecutors have been scrutinizing Trump's tax records, subpoenaing documents, interviewing witnesses including Trump insiders and company executives. Law enforcement officials familiar with the matter tell AP that the investigation has reached a critical point. As we know, a grand jury was recently impaneled to weigh evidence, and New York Attorney General Letitia James said she was assigning two of her lawyers to work with uh, Cy Vance, the Manhattan prosecutor who uh, is said to be bringing these charges uh, to work with him on the criminal probe while she continues a civil investigation of Trump. Of course, all of this comes down next week. Uh, if it does, well, that's both good and bad news for me and you in that we are taking off next week. My first chance to see my mom in over a year and a half since the pandemic began. Uh, and I want to mention that now, by the way, in case I run out of time at the end of the show, as I am wont to do. Uh, we will be back after the July 4th holiday. Don't be worried. I think uh, I think Nicole, Nicole Sandler, may be taking time off as well. So, uh, Desi, it'll be up to you to choose some top drawer encore shows to <laughs> run for our rare week standing down. Don't okay. be alarmed in any event. We are fine. Uh, but in other news, also breaking today, before I get to my guest who is standing by, uh, as you may know by now, I am one of the named plaintiffs in a federal lawsuit filed 
against the state of Georgia by the Coalition for Good Governance regarding the um, unconstitutional restrictions on press freedoms and public oversight of elections in Georgia built into the state's newly adopted I should say the Republican legislature's newly adopted voter suppression bill known as SB202, which also criminalizes the public and press's ability to oversee and report on elections and election results. The bill also, of course, adds uh, things like voter ID requirements for mail ballots, shortens the time period for requesting mail ballots, mandates fewer Drop boxes, ballot drop boxes in large metro areas of the state, specifically Atlanta, bars the distribution of food and water to those waiting in line to vote in such areas. So there are a number of civil and voting rights groups that have filed their own suits as well, uh, including the one that um, the coalition has filed that I'm a plaintiff in. But now... We all have some big-time company. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday morning announced the DOJ is also now suing Georgia over the state's new election law, alleging that Republican state lawmakers rushed through a sweeping overhaul with a specific intent to deny black voters equal access to the ballot. Uh, A.G. Garland said on Friday in announcing the lawsuit where we believe the civil rights of Americans have been violated, we will not hesitate to act. The Biden administration's move here comes two weeks after Garland said his department would scrutinize new laws in Republican controlled states that are restricting uh, uh, voter access. He said the federal government would take action if prosecutors found unlawful activity. Well, apparently, Apparently now they have. The suit comes as pressure grows on the administration to respond to GOP-backed laws that are being pushed in the states uh, this year. As of mid-May, 22 restrictive laws had been passed in at least 14 states, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. DOJ officials hinted that prosecutors were looking at other voting laws across the United States in other states and warned that the government would not stand by if there were illegal attempts to restrict voter access. More on that as well, uh, no doubt, in the days ahead after the holidays, though I believe the first court hearing uh, in the case that I'm involved in takes place uh, next week, I think Thursday, July 1. You can check coalitionforgoodgovernance.org's website for more info or follow its executive director, Marilyn Marks, on Twitter. She is Marilyn R. Marks, the number one. Uh, I'm sure she will let folks know if that hearing is open to the public via Zoom, which I think it will be. Otherwise, I'm sure we will cover it either way when we are back after the holidays. Uh, But big news with the DOJ now stepping in with their own lawsuit. And one more uh, before I get to my guest here in our breaking coverage Uh, On a previous show of the collapse of that 12-story condo near Miami Beach on Thursday, well, uh, officials say that uh, the death toll has now increased to four, along with the number of those accounted for, unfortunately. That has been increased to a horrifying 159. Mm. 
Uh, in any event, we discussed uh, yesterday the still unknown reasons for the building's collapse. I mentioned my concern that it could be due in some fashion to the rising seas of climate change, which in the Miami area have for some time now been causing what's known as uh, sunny day flooding where salt water from the ocean is creeping into the ground around coastal areas, essentially as sea levels continue to rise. Yeah, a high tide that uh, comes in further than it used to. And also remember, porous Florida sits on porous limestone, yep. so the seawater is also coming up from beneath, like a sponge. Well, as expected, I wasn't the only one apparently wondering about that. Um, actual experts in this thing have been as well over the past 24 hours, it looks like. CNN has a short short piece uh, from their live updates page on the uh, building's collapse on Thursday, citing a professor with Florida International University's Institute of Environment, uh, Shimon Widowinski. Sorry for botching his name. Uh, he told CNN that he determined in a study last year that the Champlain Towers South Condo showed signs of sinking back in the 1990s. Condo had a subsidence rate of about two millimeters a year from 93 to 99, 1993 to 1999, according to his study. Subsidence uh, is essentially what the, the sinking of the, the land itself of the land itself and the building along with it. While Widowinski said that this sinking alone would not cause the condo's collapse, he said it could be a contributing factor. He explained if one part of the building moves with respect to the other, that could cause some tension and cracks. He added that sinking was unique uh, uh, to the area of Champlain Towers South and not surrounding buildings. He said subsidence over larger areas was detected in nearby western Miami Beach, which was constructed on reclaimed wetland. Um, he said, we noticed that the building was moving and we reported that in the study, but we've seen buildings in other areas moving at even higher rates. So we didn't think it was something unusual. What's unusual is that today it collapsed, he said. And NBC News also looked into the potential that climate change may have had something to do with this. NBC's Phil McCausley reported on Thursday afternoon that local officials appeared to have a few i uh, appeared to have few ideas so far about what may have caused the uh, building to inexplicably crumble scientists however have long noted the risk of building on the shifting sands of a barrier island like Miami Beach especially with rising sea levels that may not be uh, that may not be the reason for this collapse, but it remains an engineering challenge in the region. So the way this is situated, Miami Beach is, in fact, a, a barrier island, you know, off the coast of, uh, of Florida proper, if you will. And this building is is just north of Miami Beach, also on that barrier island. Basically, we're talking billions of dollars of real estate in these high-rise condo towers built on a sandbar. Kind of, yeah. Uh, the uh, mayor of the actual town, Surfside, uh, Charles Burkett, uh, said there's no reason for this building to go down like that unless someone literally pulls out the supports from underneath or they get washed out or there's a sinkhole or something like that, he said. 
Uh, Peter Zalewski, the principal of Condo Vultures, a South Florida real estate market analysis company, said, I've been here since 1993. I've never seen something like this. He said, I have a feeling that something else is going to be discovered that happened that we can't assume right off the bat. He added, 40-year-old buildings don't just collapse, and there's a whole series of them lining up and down the coast. Yep, there is. Public records did not show many issues regarding the building beyond two lawsuits over cracks in a unit's exterior wall. Perhaps cracks like the one that Professor Widowinski suggested might be caused by subsidence? Don't know. Another issue at hand for the Surfside community, NBC Notes, is one shared with all of Miami Beach. The towns are built on a barrier island. Climate scientists and geologists have long warned that these islands cannot be developed responsibly. They're made of a loose mixture of sand and mud and provide a uh, natural protection for the shoreline. That is, unless you put a bunch of condos on them and fill them in with concrete. Oren Pilkey, a professor emeritus of geology at Duke University, who has long studied sea level rise and the overdevelopment of the coast is quoted by NBC here as saying these are very dynamic features these uh, barrier islands we didn't understand that these islands actually migrate he says until the 1970s as sea level rises they move back back closer to the land I guess an analysis of satellite images taken of Miami Beach which includes the town of Surfside found that the area had moved slightly each year through the 1990s. According to a study, uh, the report noted that these issues can lead to greater flooding and hazards for local communities. Americans, meanwhile, have built approximately $3 trillion worth of property on barrier islands and coastal floodplains. According to the Geography of Risk, that's a, uh, a book that analyzes the real estate investment in beach communities over the past century. Uh, Pilkey said that it's a tough conversation to have, but the buildings shouldn't have been there. Along with a lot of other buildings, he says, we are due for a real awakening. Uh, and I believe we are, Desi Doyne. You have talked about coastal retreat Yes. It may lie ahead on our Green News Report. Oh, I would say it's not a matter of it may lie ahead. It does lie ahead. We will not be able to stop the rising of the seas. So that is a conversation, that managed retreat conversation is one we should be starting now. Let's hope we start it soon. Well, uh, this may signal, we'll see what happens in the days ahead, but this may signal the beginning of coastal retreat. I guess, in this country, or at least down in South Florida. As I say, we'll we'll keep our eyes on that as well. But as to something I suspect we will also be keeping our eyes on in the days and weeks and months. <laughs> Plenty to go around. And likely years ahead, right-wing domestic terrorism continues to worsen in this country in the wake of Donald Trump's presidency and, of course, the attack that he incited against the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. But is increasing law enforcement and security efforts, is that the right way to deal with this burgeoning problem? Or is there something else that we ought to be doing here? 
that discussion. And an expert on the topic is ahead today on the broadcast, and I think it's a really important discussion to have right now. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is supporting you and the things that you care about. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. Right now, as much as ever. If you choose to support us, you can do it really easily, safely, and quickly via bradblog.com donate. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. On our previous program, we reported on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's announcement that she would be creating a select U.S. House committee to investigate the deadly Donald Trump incited attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, after Republicans had agreed to and then reneged on their deal for an independent, evenly balanced, bipartisan commission to do so. Many questions regarding the circumstances of this assault on our democracy and the response to it remain. It is imperative that we seek the truth as to what happened. To do that, we believe that a bipartisan commission would be the best way to proceed in the spirit of patriotism and bipartisanship and to establish an independent 9-11 type commission. Unfortunately, despite the expressed support of seven GOP senators, Mitch McConnell asked Republican senators to do him a personal favor and vote against the commission. I'm hopeful that that could still happen at some point. However, this morning, with great solemnity and sadness, uh, I'm announcing that the House will be establishing a select committee on the January 6th insurrection. Again, January 6th was one of the darkest days in our nation's history. I've said it now three times. It is imperative that we establish the truth of that day and ensure that an attack of that kind cannot happen and that we root out the causes of it all. The select committee will investigate and report on the facts and the causes of the attack and it will make report recommendations uh, for the prevention of any future attack. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Thursday announcing her intention of forming a House Select Committee to investigate the truth of what happened on January 6th and its root causes to help prevent any future attack of that kind. Well, that seems like a good idea. In response to that announcement, D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone, who was dragged down the steps of the U.S. Capitol by the insurrectionists, beaten, tased with his own weapon, and was nearly executed by the enraged far-right rioters, but who uh, some Republican congressmen had refused to even shake hands with, believe it or not. 
he told um, Officer Fanone told NBC's Andrea Mitchell that he supports the formation of this new committee. He said, quote, obviously, I supported the bipartisan commission as well, adding that it was disappointing that we couldn't get that Republican support or at least enough of it to push it through. But I do support the speaker's special committee, he said. It's time we get to the bottom of these root causes into the January 6th insurrection. Pelosi's announcement came a day after the U.S. House Armed Services Committee featured testimony from the nation's highest-ranking military officer, General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was peppered with questions from committee Republicans on their latest phony culture war grievance of the day, the outrage of critical race theory, a fairly obscure at least until Fox News decided they were outraged by it, uh, obscure decades-old academic premise that hundreds of years of systemic racism in the, in the U.S., stemming back to the days of slavery in this country, is now firmly embedded in our legal systems and business policies, resulting in the ongoing racial and economic divide preventing true equality among all Americans. It is, of course, a reasonable well-supported, if largely obscure until now, theory, which folks on the right either don't, don't seem to understand at all or choose not to or have purposely decided to misrepresent for short-term political gain and or to stoke yet more outrage among their brainwashed followers, many of whom are the same ones who supported or took part in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, or who believe the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump after having been manipulated for years by politicians and on social media alike to turn these incessant, usually bogus, almost always inflated complaints into what some now refer to as white rage, resulting in the rise of far-right extremism in this country that we have seen in recent years. General Milley, for his part on Wednesday at the committee hearing, was asked about the study of critical race theory in the military, which was also accused by several Republican congressmen of promoting wokeness among the military's top brass as yet another plank of the GOP's manipulative and ongoing and some would suggest dangerous culture wars. While Milley was initially prevented from responding to those assertions during the hearing, Democratic Congresswoman Christina Houlihan of Pennsylvania, a retired U.S. Air Force captain herself, offered her question time to the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to respond to some of the previous questions from Florida Republicans Matt Gates and Congressman Mike Waltz, who, like Milley himself, served as a Green Beret. Milley took the opportunity to speak to all of these concerns in his brief but impassioned response. I would like to yield some of my time to General Milley because I know that he had some comments that he wanted to make when Representative Gates was talking as well uh, as Mr. Waltz about a similar subject of the stand down and, and race theory. Would you like a minute or so to comment on that? Um, sure. Um, first of all, on the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So 
What is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that, because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a civil war and emancipation proclamation to change it. And we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know. And I respect your service, and you and I are both Green Berets. But I want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. And I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that. General Mark Milley, uh, impassioned comments from the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the U.S. House Armed Services Committee hearing uh, in the House on Wednesday. Again, another leader hoping to understand the cause of the rising tide of domestic extremism in the country, including the far-right, largely white supremacist extremism that the FBI recently identified as the leading cause of domestic terrorism in this country. Without understanding the root cause, can we really hope to find an effective solution to these issues? A number of experts in the field are now arguing that the cause is as much a public health issue as a criminal or even security issue or even a political issue. One of those experts joins us next to discuss what exactly that means and what we may be able to do about it if this country can get its act together to take the action that is required before these things continue to get much much worse. Dr. Brian Hughes of American University's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, otherwise known as Peril, joins us next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Yep, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Writing at The Atlantic last week, Cynthia Miller Idris, the director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab at American University in Washington, D.C., argued that extremism, in this case, domestic extremism, has spread into the American mainstream. 
In the two decades since September 11, she writes, the U.S. has fought terrorism and extremism by concentrating on law enforcement and intelligence readiness, with experts focused on disrupting fringe groups before they carry out violence. This Band-Aid approach is ill-suited, she argues, to combating modern far-right extremism, which has spread well beyond fringe groups and into the mainstream. The, extremist, uh, the, the extremism we are now seeing in the U.S. is what she calls post-organizational violence, mostly perpetrated by lone actors who are influenced by ideas online rather than by plots hatched by group leaders in secret gatherings. Most successfully executed far-right terrorist attacks in the U.S. in the past 20 years, she notes, including during the white supremacist rally in Charleston, South Carolina, at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, and at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, were carried out by men who were not official members of any groups. Even though the January 6th insurrection was a mass gathering, she says it included thousands of individuals mobilized through online disinformation campaigns and propaganda. Just 14 percent of those arrested to date, Miller Idris observes, are members of extremist groups to find this amorphous kind of radicalization, she posits. The federal government needs to see the problem as a whole of society public health issue. It needs to, for example, beef up security at the U.S. Capitol, but it also uh, it needs to put the same kind of effort and money into preventing radicalization years before anyone would ever think to mobilize in Washington, D.C. Now, of course, if there's anything that we have learned about the U.S. government in recent years, in recent decades, is that uh, we are really uh, decidedly not good at dealing with problems before they become real problems, as Miller Idris seems to be arguing we should be. Similarly, the U.S. government is not very good at understanding certain issues as public health issues at all before it's far too late to prevent death and destruction. Take a look at our gun violence epidemic, for example, which experts have long argued should be dealt with less as a criminal matter than a public health issue. But good luck getting a whole of government, much less a whole of society approach that treats it that way, no matter what the experts have long urged. As to right wing domestic extremism, domestic terrorism, well, we don't even have laws against that on the books. Terrorism by foreigners, sure. But homegrown American domestic extremists? Nope. We don't even have laws against domestic extremism as a class of crime. We certainly don't deal with it as a public health issue. But Miller Idris and the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, sometimes, as I note, unnervingly acronymed as PERIL at American University, are urging exactly that. So what does that mean? How must we change our thinking about far-right extremism to view it as a public health issue rather than simply a criminal matter in order to combat it? 
Joining us now is Dr. Brian Hughes, the Associate Director of Peril in the School of Public Affairs at Washington, D.C.'s American University, where he develops studies and interventions to reduce the risk of radicalization to extremism. His work explores the impact of communication technology on political and religious extremism, terrorism, and fringe culture. Professor Hughes, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you very much, Brad. Very happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so your colleague, uh, Cynthia Miller Idris, she goes on to argue that the, the federal government so far has not been capable of such a paradigm shift from thinking about it as a criminal security issue to thinking about it as a public health issue. Uh, part of the problem is partisan gridlock, she notes, and Republican resistance to anything related to far-right extremism, as demonstrated with the vote against the January 6th commission. Uh, but that the other problem, she says, is that the federal government focuses too much on security and not enough on preventing radicalization in the first place. So setting aside the politics for the moment... How do we make this paradigm shift? What what would be involved in changing both our thinking about the issue uh, and the way, uh, the practical way that we approach it? Uh, well, that's a great question. Um, the, the the ship of government is very big. It's very unwieldy. Um, it's very hard to steal mm -hmm. here. And um, we, uh, as a society, are incredibly militarized. We're incredibly securitized. And so uh, the solutions that we reach to uh, when we have a problem are almost inevitably securitized or militarized or contain some element of that, um, of that securitization. Mm -hmm. uh, our approach to extremism uh, and terrorism is no different. And, and certainly law enforcement and intelligence has a very important role to play here. But it can never be more than a Band-Aid solution. And as we see now, um, there aren't enough Band-Aids in the world uh, to deal with the violence that this country is facing. We really have to go deeper uh, to the root causes of these issues. Now, uh, the Biden administration's uh, proposal for how to tackle domestic terrorism and extremism, um, it, it points in the right direction. Uh, it uh, speaks about incorporating uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Department of Education uh, in, in this uh, initiative, mm -hmm. and that's really, really critical. But I think even, even more critical is allocating resources to local communities. Uh, the more locally we can um, distribute the necessary training, the necessary education, and then the necessary funding to address radicalization before it even starts, the fewer of those security and law enforcement and militarized solutions that we're going to have to come up with in the future. Mm. Is, is, I guess one of my big questions is, is this something that uh, government, uh, federal government in this case, can even do? Uh, you know, Miller Idris notes in her piece that uh, there was a, after white supremacists murdered 77 people in Norway 10 years ago, the Norwegian government launched a national action plan to counter radicalization and extremism including nine different ministries, education, social inclusion, labor, social services, and health. But countries like Norway have more of a top-down approach to such things than we do under our federalized system where states, in theory, 
control things like educational agendas and so forth. So as you know, we're good at military and you know law enforcement responses at the federal level, but less so on matters like education, social services, and health. Uh, is this something that the federal government is even capable of taking on, again, setting the politics aside, taking on, uh, you know, in, in a whole of government approach here? Or is our federal government too uh, uh, fractured to, to do that uh, along with state governments? Well, you, you certainly point out a very real challenge there. Um, the, uh, the response to extremism and terrorism is always going to be fragmented, and there are always going to be some regions, some states, that lag behind others or even resist mm -hmm. uh, the kind of initiatives that will actually reduce violence in the long term. Um, that said, uh, the federal government, uh, in theory at least, does um, eventually move to the will of the people. And I, I think it's very interesting that uh, this uh, debate about extremism and this report about extremism is coming about at the same time as this debate uh, about critical race theory, which mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Both of these are um, grassroots movements. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the critical race uh, critical race theory, uh, as it's um, branded, mm -hmm. um, is really uh, about changing our fundamental understanding of the way that uh, the history of white supremacist violence in this country mm -hmm. um, echoes into our present day. Uh, we have to address that fundamental social bias that moves our violence towards that direction of white supremacy, in that direction of um, far-right, exclusionary, violent, hierarchical um, uh, attacks, uh, in order, in order to hopefully uh, move forward, um, and that has to take place at a grassroots level. Uh, I think that this is uh, one situation where maybe the federal response does have to follow um, the broader social response. Uh, you know, I, well, as long as you uh, jumped onto the critical race theory uh, matter, I'm wondering how systemic racism itself, yes, critical race theory, and, and more specifically, I think, fear of these issues coming to public attention, you know, as we have seen, for example, in the wake of uh, George Floyd over the past year. Uh, how does uh, all of that make the concerns either worse or or better because it seems like the more that these theories are accepted ironically enough the angrier many on the right get about it which actually actually seems to be sort of counterproductive to preventing the extremism we're talking about in the first place uh, do you see the 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 paradox that i'm referring to here Yes, uh, white supremacy is not going to go quietly into the night. Uh, <laughs> it is not going to happen in our lifetime. Um, and, and it will, uh, the, the uh, efforts to combat white supremacy, to reshape our country into a more just and equitable society are going to be met with violent opposition. One of the um, most central patterns of radicalization to violent extremism is what we call aggrieved entitlement. Um, what that term means is it means that someone feels that something they were entitled to, something they deserved or that was their birthright or that they earned, uh, is going to be taken away from them and given to someone who doesn't deserve it. And so as the privilege of whiteness 
uh, is taken away, one would hope, uh, there are people, uh, people who feel they are entitled to um, all the benefits that come along with the privilege uh, mm-hmm. of, of being considered white. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will respond to that with a feeling of grievance, and some of them uh, will inevitably support or even commit violence. Um, that's, that's a reality. That's mm-hmm. why there needs to be uh, security and law enforcement and intelligence on top of uh, a more fundamental public health approach to this issue. And and in that public health approach, uh, since you cite you know education, wh- what kind of education we're we talking about? What what kind of programs would accomplish this? Uh, I guess at the local level, you uh, Miller Idris argues that uh, we you know we learned from a study of 750 parents and caregivers that they need only seven minutes of reading to improve their understanding of how radical ideas spread online. Well, that seems easy. What are they reading in seven minutes? And, and how does <laughs> understanding how radical ideas spread online prevent that from happening? Sure. Well, uh, actually, uh, what they read is uh, a Parents and Caregivers Guide to Online Radicalization uh, that was created with a joint project uh, between Peril and the Southern Poverty Law Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's available for anyone to download free of charge. Uh, the website is splcenter.org mm-hmm. slash peril. Uh, you can go there and you can read it. And um, what, it, what it provides is warning signs and red flags, things that parents and educators can look for in young people that suggest they may have been exposed to uh, extremist uh, content or they're being um, recruited by extremists. And then um, advice for how to step in, um, how to intervene in these radicalization processes. This isn't just a question of a person um, adopting outre or fringe beliefs. We really have to remind people that uh, extremism has negative consequences for our society. It has negative consequences for the victims and the potential targets. Um, people who live with things like a heightened state of anxiety, heightened depression, um, which have actual health and uh, material economic consequences mm. for them. And then finally, uh, it just has to be driven home again and again. Extremism ruins extremists. It leads people to act in ways that are immoral mm. and that are unethical. And, you know, I spend a fair amount of time speaking with former extremists, mm-hmm. um, some of whom are my colleagues. And the, the single most common pattern, the thing that I hear again and again from them, is a deep, deep sense of shame. Just horror at looking back and knowing what they said, mm-hmm. what they did, and what they believed. Mm-hmm. It tears families apart. It absolutely ruins uh, relationships as surely as drugs and alcohol do. Uh, and so uh, th- this, this isn't just a matter of a person becoming a jerk. <laughs> you know, this is a question of a person really blowing up their own lives and the lives of the people around them. Which uh, brings me to another question. You know, we've had uh, Colin P. Clark uh, of the Sufan Center on this show a number of times. Um, And most recently, he cited the January 6th uh, attack on the U.S. Capitol as something that would now be used as a recruiting tool for extremists. Now, that seems counterintuitive to me because, you know, an event like that, I'm wondering, how does that serve to inspire far-right extremists? To me... 
you know, it seems like the insurrection failed in that uh, about 500 insurrectionists are now facing jail time. That would prevent me from wanting to join, uh, you know, just share that same fate. How, how, do, uh, how do events like that actually serve as an inspiration in the thinking of radical extremists? Well, you can look at it from a few different perspectives. Uh, from the perspective of um, people who are already committed uh, far-right extremists, mm-hmm. they came very close. They came very close to a very big success. You know, in the same way that the Paris Commune um, inspired communist revolutionaries throughout the, uh, the 19th and 20th century, mm. this is a moment uh, where uh, the extreme right came tantalizingly close to this... Um, spasm of violence that they have been dreaming of against the federal government for decades and decades. Mm. So, you know, they, that's, a, that's a feeling to chase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> those, those are goals that they want to pursue. Now, at the same time, because of all the misinformation, because of all the disinformation, mm-hmm. and all the denial uh, that's coming out of mainstream political figures and media figures uh, about January 6th, there is ample opportunity uh, to spin those events into the kinds of conspiracy theories that can um, seduce even ordinary, intelligent, moral people. Uh, conspiracy theories um, trick people, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. into behaving uh, against their uh, better interests. Mm. Um, so that offers an opportunity for recruitment uh, as well. And then finally, there are, there are figures uh, that can be pointed to. Um, you know, uh, the figure of Ashley Babbitt. Uh, this uh, woman uh, who was shot uh, dead while trying to break into the Capitol. Mm -hmm. She's being turned into a martyr um, because of um, who she was, uh, her her personal history, um, the fact that she seemed like a a nice, normal person uh, (laughs) up until this moment. Um, We see in the the back channels that these uh, extremist groups use they are saying, this is the person you need to point to as a martyr when you're trying to uh, recruit people. Uh, show what a normal person this was mm-hmm. and how she stood up and she was martyred uh, for this cause. Uh, and this, you know, this will get people on our side. Um, so they're, they're, they're using that. If, uh, Dr. Brian Hughes, if, if this is to be a whole-of-society paradigm shift, uh, how should social media companies like Facebook and Twitter, how should they change what they do to help tackle this problem since so much of this uh, misinformation is spread via social media? Is there more that they can do uh, while still respecting our general premise in this country of, of free speech, even though, of course, they are private companies, they're not government entities, they're not bound by you know, these uh, same kind uh, you know, such First Amendment concerns that governments uh, w- would be. Uh, but, you know, it, it occurs to me that every action that they have taken to, you know, to try and uh, to take on this dangerous, radicalizing speech has then again, you know, like with the idea of critical race theory, has resulted in blowback from the right and, you know, in theory, still more anger and white rage, which is the very antithesis of what these actions are meant to prevent in the first place, no? Yes, uh, that's true. Um, Now, let's be clear. Some of this blowback is um, uh, manufactured. Uh, Some of, uh, a great deal of this blowback is the product of astroturfing Mm -hmm. and um, top-down media manipulation. Now, I think the social media companies could be more proactive uh, in the 
seeing the way that uh, their their services are used uh, to spread these kind of top-down disinformation campaigns. Um, but I want to give the social media companies credit. Uh, they've been slow to act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes their measures uh, have not uh, um, been quite enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have acted, and there has been an improvement as a result of those actions. They have taken steps to ban um, particularly bad extremist influencers. Uh, if you think back to 2015, 2016, social media was absolutely saturated with uh, the leaders of um, extremist, explicitly white nationalist, explicitly neo-fascist mm-hmm. uh, movements. Um, and we know, uh, you know, as a result of our, our research, that when uh, the social media companies began to boot uh, these people off of their platforms, uh, their influence uh, significantly declined. So it happened too late, but it did happen, uh, and, and it's improved matters somewhat. You have concerns about overreach in that uh, regard as far as, because, I, you know, I, I think they should do what they're doing, but i got to tell you, I'm not entirely comfortable with uh you know a a a group of uh who knows who at whether it's facebook or twitter deciding what is allowable speech because i have you know i think we've all seen that sort of thing how easily that that can be abused uh do you share those concerns from these companies um somewhat yes uh i I think that uh there's a real um, issue with uh the the sort of natural monopolies that occur with these tech companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't get into the details, but you know, I am I am a scholar of media and communication technology, mm-hmm. and the way that um, uh, the online marketplace works, and the way that social media technology works, eventually there can really only be one social media company per niche. Uh, there can only be one Twitter. There can only be one Facebook. Um, I don't know if you remember Google Groups. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I Google do. Google Groups was, was Google's attempt to break into the social media market. Mm-hmm. Now, if any company had the resources uh, available to do that, it would have been Google. But the fact of the matter is, by that point, um, Facebook had already established its market dominance, mm-hmm. and that market dominance was just unassailable. Uh, when these social media companies reach a certain level of success, um, they become um, inherently uh, anti-competitive. Mm. I think that that's something that our antitrust uh, laws should address. And I think that that's actually um, probably a way we might solve both the issue of um, violence mm-hmm. being driven by social media, as well as safeguarding those First Amendment concerns that you, you rightly cite. Very quickly, uh, well, two quick questions here before we go, uh, Dr. Hughes. What What is the biggest obstacle that you see right now uh, as, as your lab uh, peril at American University sees it to, in fact, shifting the paradigm uh, from that, you know, that, that criminal security state we're talking about, policing state, to more of a public health approach in this country? What's the biggest obstacle right now? Um, well, uh, institutional inertia, mm. um, funding. Uh, the entrenched interests, you know, of people uh, whose area of expertise, um, you know, enables them to approach this problem from a security point of view. You know, I want to, I, I want to say it again and again: law enforcement, security, and intelligence are absolutely necessary. But until we begin to view this as a much uh, larger problem with a much larger set of solutions needed, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're going to be playing whack-a-mole. I think really the the most uh, 
the, the biggest obstacle that we face is the entrenched legacy of white supremacy mm. in the United States. This is a country that was founded as a white supremacist country. The uh, Emancipation Proclamation did not end that. The Civil Rights Act did not end that. Um, people rightly point out that uh, the laws, the uh, economics, and um, the overall social hierarchy in this country have evolved in order to um, be biased in favor of people who are um, socially assigned the category of whiteness. Uh, that's not going to change overnight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, boy, uh, Fox News and Tucker Carlson are not going to like you, Dr. Brian Hughes. Uh, there's, how, can, how can listeners get involved? Because you tell the truth, I should note. Uh, how can uh, listeners get involved? You mentioned uh, splcenter.org slash peril for that uh, uh, seven minutes of instruction that seems to have helped so many people, so many parents to understand when their kids are becoming radicalized. But how can uh, listeners otherwise get involved in bringing uh, these resources and programs uh, to their communities? Well, I think that um, we see today the importance of becoming involved in uh, your local schools. Become involved in your local schools push back against some of this uh, astroturf white mm. rage mm. Uh, that, we, that we see. Um, request uh, this kind of education. Request these kinds of materials. Mm. Um, education happens at the local level in the United States, so it's really on all of us to uh, improve things in our local communities. Excellent advice. Dr. Brian Hughes, Associate Director of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, otherwise known as PERIL, at American University in Washington, D.C. You can find him on the Twitters at Mr. Brian Hughes, I believe. And the uh, the website for PERIL, I, I failed to write it down. Do we have an easy address for that? Sure. It's American.edu slash PERIL. Very good. American dot edu slash peril uh brian hughes really appreciate you joining us today uh hope you'll uh, come back in the future and we can uh, dig even deeper into this mess because i suspect it's not going away anytime soon no it's not it would be a pleasure brad thank you brian and okay we have got to get out uh thanks <laughs> as well to my producer desi doyan yep Reminder that we will be off until after the July 4th holiday, taking a rare break. We will run some uh, very fine encore presentations. Don't be alarmed. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible, of course, by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate. We are 100% listener supported and we count on you to stay on your public airwaves. So thank you. Uh, also, at this point, it wouldn't hurt to uh, help me uh, fill up the old Prius tank so I can drive out and see my mom for the first time in well over a year. Um, I think that's it. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh,